Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Early Education Show. We're up to episode 44. It's good to be back with you. I'm Liam. And I'm Lisa. Nice to talk to you again, Lisa. It's just the two of us again. It's going to be... um, We we didn't get a chance to talk about it last week, but it'll be just the two of us for probably the next three or four episodes because Leanne, as is her want, has has got off off on an international jet-setting tour. I think she's in Dubai as we record this at the moment. Is that right? Or has she moved on already? I've lost track. Yeah. Actually, it's not just a jet-setting tour. She's going to conferences to be a serious... uh, Early Education Care Academic. Oh, right. Well, we weren't invited to any of those. Because we're not academics. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah? Yeah. Yeah. yeah and anyway. certainly we're not serious about that. <laughs> that's right. We don't meet either of those two criteria. It's not gone well. <laughs> anyway, it'd be nice to just chat for the two of us again, Lisa. But um, yes. we will we'll crack on with the news list and we will start with, obviously, probably the big news this week. So, again, we're recording this on uh, Wednesday and the episode will come out on Friday. And in between those two days, Thursday, um, there's going to be a pretty big uh, action in terms of the union for the sector. So, you want to take, we've, we've got a couple couple of stories listed there, Lisa, but do you want to sort of, I guess, take us through that big news? Yeah. So, um, as I'm sure everybody that listens to this will know, United Voice have called a walkout of staff at, um, is it 3.20pm on Thursday afternoon? Just to once again emphasise the um, the gender-based um, nature of the wage um, uh, discrepancies between educators and the rest of the world. Yeah, I think it's literally specific. It's three twenty-four. I think, isn't it? Was that what it was worked out? Yeah, as? yeah, could be, could be right. And that's the time. Oh God, I'm going to explain this badly. But <laughs> um, the time that it, um, the, after which they're working for nothing. Yeah. In terms. So at of that point, they've earned on average what what men are earning. Yeah. 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 Yep. Um, anyway, as usual, United Voice um, have done an amazing job with the media for this. So it's been in, you know, TV, radio, everywhere. Um, I think that's the National Media Communications Officer, Nard of Latco, doing very well there. Um, but um, I've chosen two of the articles to speak about because they're both very different and very interesting. And then I think you've got one as well, Liam. So what I've got is one that's um, done, written by a journalist um, out of Melbourne called Mikey Perkins. Mickey Perkins? Mikey Perkins? I'm sorry, I don't know how to pronounce that name. Um, but basically she talks about how indebted she is to her educators of her children. Um, she goes to a service somewhere in Melbourne that rain or shine, um, the staff at her service, her son's service load up an old shopping trolley with a camping toilet, cheese sandwiches, a first aid kit, loo, loo roll and sunscreen, and they all go out to have a hidden oasis to have a bush, a morning of bush kinder. And as we know, that's kind of yeah, something that's not that unusual um, for educators and for services to do. But she's accepting that it's a pretty fabulous thing and that because of that, um, people, educators shouldn't, and teachers, early childhood teachers, shouldn't earn the appalling wages that they do. So she's saying, you know, that um, uh, we've all got a stake in this, so we should ensure that educators earn more. And who could argue with that? Who could argue with that? And it's interesting. It's one of those um, – there's you sort of a number of these articles uh, uh, every year uh, and often around things like International Women's Day. But it's interesting for the for, for – from the media perspective, it's often the very um, personal perspective that people bring to it. So it's one of those things where, and often journos, you know, were quite, um, you know, and I respect them as they're saying, are saying they didn't realise this was so important until they went through it themselves. Um, and yes. that's not exactly what Mickey's saying, but she's sort of saying this is a personal view. Um, it's funny, you can always tell the age of um, <laughs> you know, how old their children are by how passionate they are. Some of them go off the boil a bit and get more interested in school issues in a few years. So. <laughs> we just need to keep them in the early childhood education sector. If we can yeah. just keep all the journos there, we'll, be, we'll have won this battle very soon. But the 
other one that's really interesting is, especially in view of our topic last week where we bagged news corporation publications, is written in the Australian, which is the flagstaff um, for the um, for the, the uh, News Corp. And um, it said, that I'll read you the opening paragraph because I think it's really good. It says, childcare workers will be out on strike this Thursday and who can blame them? We pay them crap and they know it. <laughs> and it says, you know, uh, basically they get less than the unskilled person who wipes down the table down after the avocado brunch on the weekend. It's less than some people pay the teenage babysitter or even their cleaner for wiping out the toilet bowl. And so now I think that's pretty good. Yeah. yeah. Do you think they listen to the episode, Lisa, and they've they've learnt the other ways? Obviously, no. I think that's clearly what's happened. <laughs> I think she's a bit more um, reasonable of all those. But there's um, there's 178 comments on oh, that article. God. I'm not scrolling and, down, Lisa. Uh, I've been digging into comments a bit today, but I'll just. Um, uh, I'll just read you the first one. Sorry, Carolyn, but your grandstanding comments do not pass the reality test. Five <laughs> percent of inner city childcare centres charge one hundred and eighty dollars per day. Most centres change half that amount, and many struggle to make a profit. You are living in fantasy land. Blah blah blah. <laughs> so see, um, from a private provider going from there. Ah. And then the next one is, see, now I've scrolled down. I've, I've, I've ignored my own advice, which says, another man-hater hiding behind unscientific <laughs> gender, gender theory in quotation marks. <laughs> oh, dear. I must say, though, to me, I've really struggled this week with, um, with it also being the week of Early Childhood Educators Day. Um, I'm struggling with it for two reasons. One is because... Uh, the Four Peak private organisation um, that came up with it didn't think to put an apostrophe of possession in Educators <laughs> Day. I knew that was so going to be your biggest issue. Every time I see it, I just get aggravated beyond belief because if you're saying you're an educator, hey, can we at least spell correctly? <laughs> but the other thing, other reason why I've hated it in contrast to, you know, like the news of the... the um, of the industrial action is because I've read so many posts on Facebook, etc., where people have said, oh, why don't we put pen and paper out in the front so that, um, you know, parents can tell educators what a great job they're doing or, hey, look at what we've brought all of our staff members to appreciate the work they're doing, personalised water bottles. Yeah. And there is only so much of that that you can read and take seriously. I just keep wanting to say, don't buy them water bottles, give them a pay rise, or don't put pen and paper out front so parents can tell you how good you're doing. Put pen and paper out front so parents can write to government and demand yeah. that you be, you know, get a yeah. pay rise. I think that's the thing for me. Look, I, I get where you're coming from, and I, I, I find it a little bit... I don't know what the word is. Not uncomfortable. I don't hate it, but I, 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 I wish. I think that's the thing. I'm, I'm totally for you know educators be acknowledged, but I think given the the wider context of the fight we're having to value the work, I wish it. I wish it could, could be combined with you know the work Big Steps are doing, or even if there's you know if if people are uncomfortable combining it with the uni, at least having exactly said maybe an action tied to it, which would be contacting you know the local MP or writing to Simon Birmingham, the Education Minister, or writing to Malcolm Turner. It's you don't want to use the word tokenistic. That's I think that's that's an argument that could be levelled against it. And you know, totally for educators being celebrated, but um, I wish that was the, the the starting point of an action rather than just sort of doing it once a year. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, um, and look, and going on from that a little bit uh, in terms of needing to look at things in a wider context. This is my desperate attempt at a segue. It may not have gone so well. Um, I'm, just, I'm very sorry. Just before you do, yeah. I've just read the third um, comment oh, no. in that. Did you read that? 
<laughs> under that article. Hang on. You didn't once mention the terrible injustice that there is no gender balance in the childcare industry. Oh my God. Where is the call for 50% of childcare workers to be men? Mm. This is discrimination. Mm. Why are the childcare managers women? Unfair. There should be quotas. Is this Donald Trump? There's a lot of short sentences and exclamation points. And this is this is very tweet-like. Um, oh, right. You're a feminist. Says it all, really. Says it all, really. He says at the end of the comments. So <laughs> no, that's all right. <laughs> Lisa, Lisa close, close that tab. Stop reading the comments. <laughs> um, so this is an article in The Guardian that looked at uh, data uh, from the Workplace Gender Equality Agency, um, which was, it was pretty shocking when I first read it, and I want to... I want to go into it a little bit and sort of been put out by United Voice as well, which shows that um, despite about 90% of all employees in the uh, early childhood education and care sector being women, and I think that must include school age care, would it have to, Lisa? Because I think if you just look at birth to five, it's something like 96 or 97. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, those stats have been pretty known for a while, but what this sort of said is that within the the sector itself, within the birth to five, or it's... it says the preschool sector um, is that women are paid on average or 32% less than men, uh, which which is basically double the national gender pay gap of 15%. And this was it was it was sort of shocking to read. And uh, that's why we need more men in the workforce. I know. Yeah. <laughs> so, and it's really funny. Look, my initial reaction to this, and I think I've talked really briefly on the podcast a little bit about my uh, uncomfortableness with. Um, being to uh, so I have to be really careful what I say here, but um, you know there are a lot of the but being to the the issues that are facing men in the sector, which I absolutely acknowledge are there, and there are you know there is um, you know discrimination against men for working with young children. That's absolutely not okay. But to me, it has to be seen within the wider context of why the sector is so over. Um, Overrepresented by women, which is why, which is that the work isn't valued and and that it's viewed as women's work, and women should basically just doing for the love of it, which is what you know an MP in the final Queensland actually said. So to then read, so knowing that context, um, I you know I've always decided, you no, know, I'd r- rather than spending my time and effort talking about men in the sector, I want to be talking about women in the sector because that's the biggest that that to me is the biggest issue, which the other things are symptoms on. So to then read that within this sector, which is you know so which so shocking. terribly valued values women we've we've you know that men are paid so much significantly more it is it's it's it surprising well i mean the, the it, it it does a little bit and look i should point out here that i that there are on social media, I've seen a lot of people sort of not disputing the data, but questioning some of its sourcing and questioning how it's been presented. Look, my view is, and look, and I'll entirely put my hand up here and say I have not looked into it. I'm basically taking the Workplace Gender Equality Agency at their word. From what I've read, they've done this kind of research before. They're generally well trusted with their data. Look, my view is, even if it isn't 100% accurate, there clearly is a problem. Whether it's you know exactly 15, you know, whether it's exactly you know twice as bad or 1.5 times as bad or 1.6 times as bad really it's not good enough um i would assume and look and lisa you know more about employment stuff particularly in the sector than me i would assume it would be the the ratio of men who are then in senior leadership positions as opposed to not so the there are uh, what i'm trying to say the percentage of men in senior leadership positions is higher than the percentage of men working directly with Uh, children so men are promoted probably is but I think there is probably also in services that don't um, adhere, you know, strict. We're under this presumption that everyone's employed under an award, and I don't think that's actually true. A lot yeah. of people in smaller services, especially small privately owned, family owned services, are paid at the discretion of the owners. And I think in those services, men, um, because they're often seen as a very marketable thing to (laughs) families, oh, look, we've got some male educators, they they are paid higher. Yeah. Well, God, for anyone who's seen me in person knows that's a terrible strategy for for me. But um, the the other thing I think, I obviously don't want to spend too much time on this, but the... I think when I saw this, I just sort of tweeted out this needs to be a bit of a wake-up call to men in the sector. And what I mean by that is it, 
I think it's a it's a wider cultural problem that can't be solved by individuals necessarily, but I think it is important for men to acknowledge that at least acknowledge that this is an issue and needs to be called out at the same time as they're about the battling discrimination themselves. When I see a lot of the like men's support groups and all those kind of things, I think that's really important. And I, and and it is you know supporting people going through discrimination is important. But I would hope that they're also spending time. Um, challenging some of these issues because there are I, I do worry there's a bit of an unconscious bias around the promotion of men and the appointment of men into senior leadership roles and I would you know just to wrap up I would really I'll, I'll try and find the link I'm not sure if it's publicly available but if it is on Google Scholar I'll try and uh, link to it which is research by Jennifer Sumption which talks about what I think she terms the glass uh, escalator effect so for people who are aware of the glass ceiling which is this you know sort of invisible sort of shield that keeps women down she talks about for men who were in low-status professions dominated by women, what's called a glass escalator effect, where they're basically shot up, you know, above and beyond uh, other people. And that, uh, you know, it's really interesting research. And from my experience in the sector, I it sort of rings true to me. So I think it is just it was... True to so your own career? Oh, look, I think Lisa is part of it, absolutely. I mean, I've... It, 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 I've you know, I'm proud of the work I do, but I've seen, you know, I'm, I'm, I've worked in a lot of senior leadership roles in early childhood from a fairly young age. It would be yeah, madness to yeah. assume that, you know, part of that isn't standing out. And, and, it, and when I talk to people about it, I say, you know, it's often, it's, it's, it's often literally as simple as even just standing out in the crowd. I'm, I'm remembered when I come in and talk at early childhood events. I'm probably the only bloke around. Um, even that just as an, uncon- an unconscious bias and an unconscious knowledge of uh, putting myself forward absolutely would have would have had an impact on the career and that's, yeah. that's that's challenging for me and I guess I can either my options are to ignore that and pretend that I've just got where I am on merit and it should be you know it was, well that that comes with you know being uh, you know a male generally in our society as well as being um, privileged white educated male gives me a lot of huge advantages that other people don't have anyway so the choice is to ignore that or to acknowledge it and not turn down roles because I'm, I'm not going to do that but if I do have those roles acknowledge that part of that includes a good deal of privilege and making sure that then I use that position to to advocate for others who don't get those things and i think that's what i would be (laughs) that's what i would be asking of i think that that's all that anyone can ask blokes in the sector to do to be aware of their privilege and to help advocate one of the things i often when i'm talking about gender in the sector is i just ask the guys to remember just one really simple thing that most of the women that are they work with are working double shifts because they've got their um own yeah um, families, you know, yeah. families to look after. Yeah, exactly. As well as their job here. Yeah, in a so, way that often men don't have to. Yeah, so I think it's been a really interesting week in terms of the news and media for how we think and how we th- what we think and know about educators. So um, yeah, I'd, I'd really recommend everyone has a look at those articles, the news list, and and see what it means for for them and their services. But we'll we'll bring you some more news next week as usual. But we're going to take a quick break, and then we're going to be back with our main topic. Which uh, this week is good. we're in the middle of Child Protection Week as we record this, so we're going to be having a bit of a discussion about child protection uh, in early childhood services and organisations. So stay with us, and we'll be back in just a minute. All right, welcome back. So thanks for staying with us. So we're going to talk uh, about child protection this week. So it's uh, the, the National Week for Child Protection in Australia. This comes around every year uh, and is obviously you know, a very important thing for, for those of us who work with young children to focus on. It's been you know, a far greater focus in Australia over the last sort of decade with things like the, uh, the Royal Commission into Institutional uh, Child Sex Abuse and those kind of things. But uh, we wanted to start off uh, sort of the topic, but by firstly, I'd like to congratulate Lisa on getting a you know, fantastic article published in the Fairfax Papers in the Sydney Morning Herald today, Lisa, that looked at... Thank you. Yeah, we, 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 it's always fantastic to see articles by early childhood advocates getting in there. But um, look, I don't want to spoil it, but it's a really interesting article that sort of links sort of the experiences of children and the same-sex mar- marriage, what are we calling it, same-sex marriage Twitter poll or postal survey, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> so do you want to tell us about how the article came about, Lisa, and give us a bit of a summary? Uh, yeah, look, I would urge people to read it, um, not just because I wrote it, but because um, the more people that click on articles like this, then the more inclined they are to publish articles 
um, about children, you know, about children's rights the next time. So this, I just got really angry at the weekend and just thought, I hate the way these people are co-opting children and children's rights into the same-sex marriage thing. As far as I'm concerned, marriage is uh, something that adults do and it should have nothing to do with children, not a thing. But, um, you know, all the arguments are one whole sphere of the same-sex marriage opponents, um, same-sex marriage opponents is about what will it do to children? Children deserve to be brought up in loving marriages, you know, like that's why we have marriage to protect children and, oh, no, my child will be forced to wear a dress if people are allowed to marry the person they love. And so I just went... Yeah, I happen to remember some stats about things that where children aren't protected in Australia. And the more I started to read stats, I just thought, I've got to pull this all together and prove that in Australia, children just really aren't protected very much. So that's what I did. It was great. And look, absolutely. We'll include a link, obviously, to the article, particularly. And as Lisa says, definitely check it out. But what were some of the. Some of the, you know, do you want to pick maybe one or two of the stats, obviously, from the article that really sort of either caught you by surprise or, or, or are the most sort of shocking for you, do you think? Um, okay. Probably the one that most shocked me was the one about hunger and food. Mm. Um, and I'm just flicking through my article trying to find it. Yeah. 33% of the people who receive food relief in Australia from Food, food Bank Australia are children. More, and that means more than 216,000 children receive food relief each month and an additional 14,600 children are turned away every month because of food shortages. Wow. Yeah, and... One in 33 children receive child protection services. So out of every 33 children that are born, one will receive child, you know, a child protection service of some sort. That's in- so incredibly if you shocking. think that, you know, say if you've got a, 100 children in your service, on average three of them will um uh, you know, require a child protection service. Now, if you, you know, obviously some services are dealing more with populations where 60 or 70% of the children hmm. are. Some would be lucky to ever see a child in need of child protection, but it's still pretty big numbers. Yeah. And with, look, Lisa, were there any stats you sort of couldn't fit into the article that you wanted to share with us as well? Look, there was, but um, these weren't so much ones that I wanted to include in the article, but I just wanted to talk about because one of the things I found when I was researching the article is that, as you'd expect, most child abuse happens to children in their first year of life and then um, a bit more, you know, slightly less between the age of one and five, right? Why is that an obvious figure? Well, hopefully by then um, they've been taken away from Hmm. abusive families. But in that, so knowing that most children that get abused get abused in the years that they're at our services, you would then think that most notifications of child abuse, from professionals at least, would come from early childhood educators. But that's not the case. So, in fact, how many, if I said to you, Liam, how many reports do you think would be made by um, educators in a year? What do you think, you know, across Australia, what do you think the answer would be? Mm, I don't know. We'd be looking at something like 5,000, 6,000? We're looking at 1,600. Really? And that includes um, some New South Wales figures that, like every New South Wales figure, (laughs) are dodgy and can't really be compared to the others. But, like, Victoria, only 157 notifications. Queensland, where childcare workers weren't even man or educators weren't mandatory reporters until recently, 159. 
ACT 22, Tasmania, Tasmania 18. God, that's really shocking. So are these, these are just reports, so these aren't even reports that go to the next stage of investigation or something? No, just... there's a number of investigations by okay. source of notification, right? Okay. So these are the ones that do go to the investigation stage. Where did they come from? Uh-huh. So most of them, most of the reports come from police. In comparison, the police made 33,000 reports during that year. Um, Teachers, school personnel, 25,000 reports. Wow. Medical and health personnel, 16,000 reports. Families, 17,000 reports. Friends and neighbours, 5,000 reports. So as you can see, us sitting on 1,600 is really, really low. It is. I wish I, I wish I knew why that was the case. Do we think there's a correlation at all between? And look, and probably would require more analysis of the data than we have time for. It does of the research of this podcast. But is there a correlation between states where uh, educators are mandated reporters and where they're not? I don't. Uh, I don't know because I think that Queensland one is quite high for a year when they weren't mandated yeah. reporters. Yeah, but I I have read. Somewhere along the research, um, I think it was I was doing some research about the Royal Commission and what they were saying, and they're saying that a, a surprisingly small amount of the population would know what which agency to report to or how to yeah. make a report of child protection, and were uncertain about their ability to recognise child abuse when they saw it. Which is really concerning. Yeah. Yeah, given the children are less likely to verbally disclose in that uh, in that in that sort of age range that it's vitally important that educators know what signs and what uh, you know behaviours to look for. Yeah. Yeah. So look that's probably a good segue then Lisa to, to launch into the first sort of question we wanted to look at, which was uh, do we do enough in early childhood services to to keep children safe and, and when children are in need of protection, how well you know, do we work with them? You know, someone who sort of obviously consults and works with a lot of services but a little bit external to the sector, how do you, how do you think in general we what's – your, what's your grade of us? How are we doing in the sector at the moment? Um, look, it's hard for me to really know but – I know that when I look at um, child safe organisations and what they're supposed to do and then I look at what the sector does, even like the most basic thing that um, child safe organisations should do or do do, which is proclaim themselves as child safe organisations by putting it in your recruitment ads, etc. So the theory is, is, you know, Mr. Pedophile comes up and is looking for a childcare job so he can get in and do some, I don't know why I'm saying childcare all over the place tonight. I'm sorry, <laughs> looking for an educated job so he could, um, you know, groom some children. And um, If there's two ads where all things are equal and one of them says I'm a child-safe child organisation, that person is less likely to apply for that job. Yeah. Because it's a red flag to him that there's procedures in place to be on the lookout for people like him. That's good. So so services that sort of take a sort of holistic approach to child protection, which includes things like their recruitment induction uh, processes as well. And, And I've got a, you know, sort of story to tell on that. Uh, topic as well. I remember a couple of weeks ago, I was um, we obviously advertise uh, through the organisation I work with on Seek, and so I always sort of check to see if ads and stuff are up. And uh, I make an excuse. I'm often just for busybodying to see if anyone I know has left a you know centre. The ACT is <laughs> tiny, so you always just say, "Ah, oh, they're advertising director at that centre. I wonder where that person's gone." Um, but I just pretend it's for work. But I, there was an ad for a outside of school hours care service. Now it was listed as a private advertiser. They didn't say who it was from, but the headline was "Apply today, start." tomorrow and it only got worse and then that, that rang so many alarm bells for me so for exactly that Lisa for someone who is you know who should not be working with children would just see that and go that's perfect there's no way they can do you know quality yeah. checks there's no way they yep. can do anything by that by that you know is a pretty to me extreme 
example. Um, but absolutely, the flip side of that is you see organisations, I think, now taking that far more seriously and talking about how seriously they take uh, child child protection. Um, One of the things that I, I did in the last few days is I reread. Remember, I'm a nerd, right? So I'm not suggesting everyone does this, but maybe I'm recommending that you do have a glance. I reread the Royal Commission's report on to the one case that they really looked at of um, child sexual abuse in a childcare institution, which was an out-of-school hours care service run by the YMCA in New South Wales. And the report's there, and if you just read the executive summary or have a poke through it, there but for the grace of God goes so many people yeah. in our sector. If you had to go on a stand and were asked questions about, did you ring three referees for that person? Did you, when was the last time you made sure that all of your staff had child protection training? Do, um, uh, is your child protection policy all contained in the one policy or does it drift amongst a few other policies? Are there things in your handbooks that might contradict things in your policies? Are there photos of children in your handbooks that might contradict things in, in your child protection policies? When you read all of that stuff that they were questioned about during that public hearing and when you read about the failures of their processes, it could easily be any service. Yeah, and I think it's um, worth highlighting as well. So that was, I mean, quite a it was quite big in the media that when it when it first happened. So I think the the educator, well, we probably shouldn't give him that professional designation, but his name was Jonathan Lord, I think. And that's right. And I think it's worth pointing out a couple of things there that that I think. Uh, really raise the issue of child protection in organisations, particularly in the idea of child safe organisations. And I think it should be pointed out that the YMCA's response to that has been pretty spectacular. So I work oh, with, it has. yeah, look, and I, I, there's obviously a YMCA based in the ACT, and I, you know, have colleagues and 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 do regular sort of networking with them, and they they have you know probably some of the best uh, child safe practices and um, uh, things sort of going in the early childhood sector. So I think it's important to acknowledge that, but that. You're absolutely right that there was a it was a it was a failure of sort of organisational systems and processes to identify risks to children, and it really highlights how um, how these things absolutely can happen, and that the importance of having that child safe approach to all aspects of organisational business, including like we sort of said before, you know, recruitment, induction, but you know, down to um, a really interesting one that I know would be a pretty hot topic in the sector, even around things like, you know, educators babysitting outside of our hours. Yeah, you know? yep, for sure. Yeah, we had, you know, the organisation I work with, we don't allow that. And that wasn't, you know, a, a terribly happy change for people. And again, you, you know, you know, you're doing that in a sector that's really underpaid. So to then go, by the way, we're not going to let you babysit it was obviously a tough decision, but it's the right decision because it, it blurs those lines between educators' professionalism and their role as educators and teachers and, and, performing in another role that is very much focused on a direct relationship with a family where risks, you know, and particularly if they, if you know, if what I always say to people though, yes, it's a separate thing, but you, but you know, you only know that family because of your work here. So the risk to the organization and the risk to, um, to children, if, you know, families are seeking that from, from an organization that can't control them outside of hours is, is too great. Yep, for sure. One of the um, uh, things that the Royal Commission came up with is that um, uh, that rules about adult child and child child relationships in services should be unambiguous, widely disseminated, and supported by staff supervision and training. And we think, yeah, well, that's what we do, don't we? But, you know, mm -hmm. sometimes the unambiguous isn't there. Yeah. One of the things they also said was that the policies um, that the Y had at the time are too complex for many staff to comprehend. Yeah. And, frankly, I've never seen a child protection policy that isn't 
complex. <laughs> and it's tricky because often they have to be because if they're meeting sort of like legislative and regulatory requirements, you often certain you have to have a kind of bit of uh, nonsense in there. But one of the things I'll, um, or sorry, a couple of things I mentioned is you can the organisations can definitely take responsibility to develop, um, you know, sort of summary versions of them and have them on display in in services. So we've, you know, again, I feel like I'm talking about myself a lot here, but we, you know, we have a really simple flowchart in terms of what requirements are. And they're in staff rooms. They're in each room. Uh, it's one of those things where you know, sort of educators sort of can't get away from them, and it's a re- and, and obviously refers to the more lengthy policy that people can go through. But it's a really simple one that you know is is far more understandable for people. And the other thing I thought, because we were being a bit mean to New South Wales earlier, I'm going to give them a bit of a, a round of applause here. Is New South Wales uh, has a really good the decision tree around. Um, which supports uh, people who are mandated reporters to decide whether they should make a mandatory report. But it's a really clear, simple process that actually takes people through uh, the thinking about, you know, um, you know, potential behaviours or potential evidence for the children are being potentially Yeah, it's neglected. just such a pity that in New South Wales we don't follow up the report. <laughs> well, the, the initial part is at least very good. <laughs> I will say that. <laughs> Look, I just wanted to quickly run through, Liam, um, what the Royal Commission has already developed quite a bit of policy out of the Royal Commission, even though we're not at final report stage. And they've came up with a very simple eight, uh, ten things that child safe organisations do. And or, and I thought if we just quickly run through those, Go for it. it would help people. So first of all, child safety is embedded in institutional leadership, governance and culture. Second, children participate in decisions affecting them and are taken seriously. Third, families and communities are informed and involved. Fourth, equity is promoted and diversity is respected. People working with children are suitable and supported. Processes to respond to complaints of child abuse, sexual abuse are child-focused. Staff are equipped with the knowledge, skills and awareness to keep children safe through continual education and training. Physical and online environments minimise the opportunity for abuse to occur. Implementation of child safe standards is continuously reviewed and improved and policies and procedures document how the institution is child safe. And I think, yeah, like we can all, all should just take a little bit of time to think about yeah. if we do all of those in our services. Yeah, they're pretty clear and straightforward. I don't think they're too um, too onerous or uh, probably sort of best practice in terms of the uh, the in in terms of you know working within a child safe organisation. The only other thing I'd add as well is that as part of the new uh, changes to the national law and regulations that are coming through from a CEQA, which is starting next month in October. Uh, there is a change to the child protection nominated supervisors. So the national law and national regulations have been amended to require that nominated supervisors and persons in day-to-day charge of a service must have undertaken child protection training as required within their jurisdiction. And it's usually interpreted to mean sort of once every 12 months. So that's, I think that's a really good change. Uh, you know, obviously very specific to the role of the nominated supervisor. That's definitely something for, for services and, you know, probably particularly approved providers, but for people in that nominated supervisor role to make sure they're finding, you know, good quality child protection training for their entire team but obviously this is now a requirement under the law and regs for, for, for nominated supervisors sounds good absolutely um and then so we've obviously look lisa we can't go particularly if it's just the two of two of us talking we can't go an entire episode without mentioning the jobs for families package oh. at some point <laughs> so obviously what are we you know come july 2nd 2018 what do we do we think there's you know the, the, the jff is going to have an impact on how services engage and interact with child the child protection system well it is and it's not going to be good i'm shocked so um uh basically remember the additional child care subsidy Yes. Which is, you know, when you've got special needs, you get a bit more than the um, straight hourly um, subsidy rate. Yes. So 
It's got four categories. One of them's called um, grandparents. One of them's called temporary financial hardship. One of them's called transition to work. And the other one's called child well-being. And it was changed from child at risk because um, the, the services basically fed back that that wasn't a great title to have. So it's called child well-being, which is a little bit too murky for me, but hey. Um, so normally, um, so how the additional childcare subsidy work is that it pays 100% of the fee charged for up to 100 hours per fortnight. So you no longer have the activity test if you deem to be a child at risk or a child needing well-being. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so you can have up to 100 hours per fortnight of care. But it's 100% of the fee charged up to 120% of the hourly fee cap. So what does that mean? The hourly fee cap at the moment is eleven fifty-five for a long day care centre. So one hundred and twenty percent of that is thirteen dollars eighty an hour, which makes it um, you know what, the fee that can be covered for someone for a child at risk, so that they get free childcare as they do under. Um, uh, additional what's it is it additional CCB what's it called the the ACCS the additional childcare subsidy no the childcare benefit what's the oh the um the childcare the CCS the childcare subsidy yes so S special childcare benefit (laughs) a whole bunch of new acronyms to learn yeah I don't remember what the old one is I hate the new ones so much I can't remember the old ones um. So whereas at the moment you can get 100% of the fee as long as it's the same fee that you charge for all other children, now it'll only be a maximum of 120% of that 11.55, which comes up to $13.80 an hour. Now you may well be going, well, $13.80 an hour, that's $138 a day. Nobody charges more than that, do they? Mm-hmm. And I decided to do a little bit of an exercise today where I looked at the fees in Sydney CBD, which I'm admitting is probably the highest in Australia. But of the 21 long day care services in the 2000 postcode, only two of them have fees of less than $138 per day. Yeah. So if a child... Um, at risk is going to any of those and the service wants to extend, you know, um, uh, free childcare to that child, then they either have to drop their fees for that child or the child will still, or the child's family will still have to pay. There'll still be a gap fee. A gap. Yeah. Yeah, Which is a bit of an issue. Yeah, and the yeah. Re- research is really clear that for particularly for children and families experiencing vulnerability, um, this is a really well-known concept in sort of community work, which is uh, any 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 fee is a barrier to someone. So particularly yeah, for those for most sure. the the importance of under the current system the the, the special childcare benefit system the importance of being able to reduce that to zero no matter what the fee is is really critical to ensuring that you know families can still access. Um, yeah, the other, I mean, the other big thing for me with the, with the JFF stuff, and I know I've been going on about this for probably close to 18 months now, is how much of particularly this part of the legislation, so the stuff around, uh, additional subsidy and the, and, and supporting children, uh, who are at risk or experiencing vulnerability is how much of it sits within the ministers and the secretary's rules. We still, yep, for sure. we still, you know, this, this legislation was passed in February. It is now September and there is, this is still not published and it is still not legislated that mm. the who is eligible for this, for the, for who, who would be eligible for these subsidies is still, Unknown, and this this infuriates me no end. And I remember, you know, going. I can't remember which episode it was, but the episode after I'd been to the Department of Education consult, no, not quite, information session. At least they didn't lie and call it a consultation session. After the implement, after the uh, passing of the legislation, and I, I, I think I must have stood up and asked about five questions about it because it's just infuriating that this is such a critical part of the system, ensuring that. I mean, the JFF is entirely geared towards locking out 
vulnerable children as it is, this is the only part that's going to allow for, for many of us to ensure that some of these children yeah, have some access. This is the safety net. This is the safety net, and we still know nothing about it and why this why well, people aren't hammering know, on about this we do know a little me. bit about this because remember the slides that they put up <laughs> in those information sessions oh, God. So what we know is that service pro- providers <clears throat> can make the initial six weeks yeah. um yeah like you can decide that a child needs the additional child care subsidy for the first six weeks. Yeah, which is less than half of what we can do now. So we can do 13 weeks now. Yeah. It's less than half. But we also know that the nasty thing is, is that as soon as you've approved that six weeks, you've got to refer um, the child. You've basically got to notify the child, yeah. make a notification about the child. And look for I think it- the, the words that they used were, they must share information with an appropriate <clears throat> state or territory body. Yeah. But as you know, and I know, that means notification. Yeah. So I think, and, you know, not going back to the advocacy piece around this, but I'm, I look, maybe this is happening behind the scenes and I'm just not seeing it, but why peak bodies aren't hammering on about this, that where this is now, you know, nearly six months after the legislation's passed, where, you know, we're, we're staring down the barrel of July 2018 that I we still do not know. I suspect bodies have been involved in formulating them. Well, there needs to be some pressure to be releasing this because it's, it's, it's madness that this is such a critical part of this system and it's probably the only way that some children will even be able to access at all and it's still sitting in, you know, ministers and secretaries' rules that, we, that aren't published. Yep. Yeah. Anyway, after after you've approved for that six weeks and reported them, then um, the 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 thing on the slide said that a provider can let the department know <laughs> how long the child might be at risk. Oh, for God's sake! <laughs> this infuriates me. And for those of you know working, you know, if there are centre directors out there listening, or people who you know process special childcare benefit applications, you will exactly know what I'm talking about when I say uh-huh. the department never approves. Applications beyond the first thirteen weeks. I can't. I, I've literally I've worked in the sector a long time as a centre director, and an area I've never had the department approve an, an application for SCCB after the thirteen weeks. I know it does happen, but it's really rare. Um, and they use this. It's it's this Kafka esque nineteen eighty four style bureaucratic thing where they say, well, special childcare benefit is for temporary hardship. So if it, if if it's going for more than thirteen weeks, it's not temporary hardship anymore. And that's literally the justification I've received when I put in an application for for additional SCCB beyond the thirteen weeks. Is well, clearly this isn't temporary, and this isn't what this funding's for. It's okay. it is bureaucratic. Is know, that even instance. even for children at risk? Because I haven't. Uh, in, well, yeah, I haven't heard that complaint. Mostly for financial hardship, I will admit, yeah, but, in, yeah, but it, okay. it, is, it is difficult for child at risk as well if you don't have a huge amount of documentation backing it up um, and the emphasis is on my, – my, my read of it is is the emphasis is on denying it rather than yeah. how can we best approve it. It's what, what are the yeah. reasons we can find to deny it. Well, the actual wording on the slide that they put up was that um, the Department of Human Services would determine ongoing 13-week periods based on information on whether the child remains at risk. I mean, a child that is at risk, how is that going to be solved in six weeks or 13 weeks? Of a oh, child's Liam, at- <laughs> you're an educator. Can't you fix that? We're going to have to step up our game, obviously. We're going to have to work at getting this done in 19 weeks seems to be probably when we'll... We're going to have to figure out a, a 19-week plan to stop all vulnerability in a child. Yes, let's get on to that sector. So thanks for joining us for this episode on uh, child protection. Uh, as, it, as this episode comes out, it'll be the last day of Child Protection Week and look, hopefully, you know, services have been engaged and doing a whole bunch of stuff with it. But we'll include a link to the sort of main National Child Protection Week site, which is uh, headed up by uh, NAPCAN, which is an organisation uh, dedicated to the, obviously, the prevention of uh, child abuse and neglect. And that's the National Association for the Prevention of Child, of child Abuse and Neglect. So obviously, well worth checking out their site. But um, stay with this for just another quick break and we'll be back with our recommendations and wrap up. All right. 
welcome back. So we're going to bring you just the recommendations for the two of us this week. So Lisa, what guess are you? Guess what I've done. <laughs> I've Have you been cheeky, a, a Lisa? Conversation one <laughs> because Liam's not. <laughs> she'll be fuming. She'll be. She'll be. Wherever she is on the other side of the world, she'll be waking up, twitching. And what's going on? Hang on, Lisa. Lisa's done something. <laughs> well, she's not here. Um, <laughs> I've got a conversation one, and I'm not going to go through it in in um, detail because I really want people to read this one. But I'll just read you the heading. The experts who put storytelling language and better paid teachers at the heart of early education. Is it the federal government? Mm, strangely enough, oh, no. No, okay, damn. <laughs> <laughs> so I want everyone to go and read that. So I'll just leave that there as a tantalising Oh, it's like a little teaser trailer. Go and read it, yeah. people. <laughs> um, and look, and I'll be I'll be quick as well. My one, actually, this one kind of felt like the one Leanne might have chosen if she was here. So I feel like I'm sort of actually doing Leanne's recommendation. But um, this is an article. Uh, I feel like I'm I'm doing a lot of uh, US articles at the moment, but I'm I'm, I'm sort of getting a lot of them in my feed at the moment. But it has a look at um, the, the headline for that one is, may we please forget about tests for a minute and go read some books. And the opening paragraph is, the average American student now takes 112 standardized tests throughout their K-12 <gasps> career. Oh, my God. I thought we were bad with a few I know. <laughs> So it could be worse. But And in preparation for these tests, too many schools spend hours on test prep or school-based drills. And look, and we've, t- we've sort of talked about this you know, to the top-down testing approach to children in previous episodes, but it was it's pretty staggering stuff. And there's some really good stuff there about inquiry-based learning, which uh, goes right back to, to Socrates, right back to sort of uh, ancient Greek times. So, look, if it was good enough for the ancient Greeks, we can probably, you know, it's probably all right for us. We might as well. Yeah. I think, Maybe. <laughs> I think. I think. Well, I think they were. Great argument. Well, they were. Well, they were okay with uh, same-sex relationships. I think back then, weren't they as well? They probably. Yeah, they were too. That's a good point. We've probably got. They've probably got a fair bit to learn. They might go back to there, but um, certainly okay to be a to be a bloke anyway. Back then, anyway, we're just kind of the same now. <laughs> All right. So there are recommendations. Go and check them out. Um, we we hope everyone sort of likes these these things we, we put out there. Remember to head to the website if you want the links as well. Uh, but that's it for another episode. Thanks for sticking with us. Just a reminder, obviously, we have our live show coming up, which is very exciting. If you head to earlyeducationshow.com forward slash live. Has anyone actually booked in? We have. Lisa, I was actually going to say we're actually we're, we're selling pretty well. So if, if you haven't, if you do really want to come and we're maybe waiting to book a bit later or um, – um, so obviously the show's in November, but uh, we're actually selling tickets at a fairly good rate. So I would really, really, would really recommend uh, going and heading to the site and, and booking tickets. We're, we're, we're looking forward to seeing everyone there. It's going to be going to be a great night. So that's earlyeducationshow.com forward slash live. Uh, while you're there, if you just head to earlyeducationshow.com, that's our main website. You can hit contact us to, to get in touch with us. Uh, you can also click support the show if you're really enjoying the discussions we're having. And that takes you to the page. Uh, Patreon page where you can support us financially for as little as $1 a month and that means we can do lots more fun stuff with the podcast in the future so all of that support is really really valuable uh, if you don't have the opportunity to do that it'd be great if you could give us a rating and review on the Apple Podcast Store that really helps other early childhood professionals and people that are interested find the podcast and join the Early Education Show community. Uh, you can get in touch with us via email at earlyedushow at gmail.com. And we're also at Early Edu Show on both Facebook and Twitter. Uh, you can also get in touch with us all individually on Twitter. So Leanne, as she uh, trots around the globe, you can still get in touch with her at Leanne M. Gibbs 3. I'm at Leah McNicholas. I'm at Lisa J. Bryant. And it'll just be the two of us back again next week, Lisa. The two and of us. Isn't there a song about that? Do, 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 probably. Do, 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 do. Not one that I'm probably going to sing in public. make it sound like we're in a relationship, and that would not be funny. <laughs> it could be. I mean, that would be good for, good for ratings, Lisa, if we started some sort of scandal. Liam, aren't you like 30 years younger than me? <laughs> <laughs> but I think I'm older than you at heart, though, Lisa. So oh, we're yeah, probably true, all right. True, true. <laughs> I think you were born as an old man. <laughs> <laughs> so until next week, we hope everyone uh, has a great week and we'll be back with episode 45 then. So it's bye from me. And from me. And also from Leanne, <laughs> even though she's not really here. <laughs> bye, everyone.